Who scripts your ritual? Shalom! Hag Sukkot Sameach! Thank you for joining us for the sermon of Sunday, September the 19th, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. In Leviticus 23, God commanded the people of Israel to live in booths for one week every year in order that they may know that I brought them out of Egypt. How does enacting a ritual lead to the knowledge of the Lord? Reverend David Pelegi tells us that, among other important lessons, Sukkot teaches us the importance of making sure that our rituals are based on truth. Friends, we turn to Scripture. As we study the Word of God, let's remember how important this Word is and uh, receive it and learn what we can. So open our hearts and our ears to hear what God has to say to us this morning. The first reading are selections from Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading today is from Zechariah 14, beginning at verse 16. When the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles, if any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This is the word of the Lord. Now, third portion is from the Revelation to John, chapter 7, 
beginning at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we ask that your word will um, stimulate us and encourage us, and Lord, even push us, Lord, to a deeper level of a commitment and obedience, and even a deeper level of appreciation of all the things, good things, that you have done for us, you are doing for us, and you continue to do. Lord, we pray that we will not take your, your goodness for granted. In the mighty name of Jesus, Amen. It's uh, important for us is uh, our setting uh, and the history of this church that we take uh, the Jewish feast days with uh, a great deal of seriousness. And um, if you came expecting to hear some new, exciting, end-time revelation about the Feast of Tabernacles, well... I'm afraid I won't be able to do that as I am under strict instructions to keep this sermon less than 55 minutes. <laughs> I won't tell you who's uh, got a stopwatch out, but if you look carefully around the congregation, you'll see that person. <clears throat> you'll see that person. And then when they start waving a red flag or something, you'll, you'll know who that person will have revealed himself. And... Uh, in any event, it's not all the cool, hidden, you know, revelation, you know, or the new stuff that uh, should, um, you might say, excite us. 
But really, what should be sobering, should it not, is all the old stuff, the stuff that we know, but uh, that sometimes we have a hard time putting into practice. And uh, I think that's the approach that we take towards these holidays. Secondly, it's not that the holidays, they're all fulfilled by Jesus, and they don't mean very much to us. Maybe a, some, a little symbolism here, a little symbolism there. No, in these holidays, these festivals, there's Torah. There's guidance, direction, and instruction for us. There's revelation about the character of God. And so we need to take the word of God seriously, even if we ourselves aren't building a sukkah, yes, and uh, sleeping in that sukkah or living in that sukkah for uh, the next seven days. How you want to celebrate this festival or celebrate during the festival, uh, it's not a controversy I want to enter into. Yes, but what this festival can teach us as believers, I think is, uh, I think is, is very important. I think the other thing I can tell you, if you really want to know about the Feast of Tabernacles, look it up on Wikipedia, right? There are, there are seven biblical holy days, yes, throughout the year, and they take place within a seven-month period. Six of them are festivals. One is a fast day, Yom Kippur. Yes, three are in the spring, three are in the autumn. Three of them, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, these are pilgrim festivals. And uh, thus, the liturgy that we are using is for us to recall how pilgrims, including Jesus and the early disciples, came to Jerusalem chanting the Psalms, Psalms of Ascent. But of all the three festivals, three pilgrim festivals, the one that uh, became the most popular and became the biggest, and the one that was designated, yes, simply with the words, Hahag, the feast, was the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Yes. So what is it that we take away from this as a community? So I think the first thing I'd like just to, the first thing that was pointed out in our first reading, sorry, in the end of the first reading, we read this verse from Leviticus 23. It says, all native-born Israelites are to live in booths. Why? So we'll remember something, yeah, so that we get a week off and all government offices are closed and the whole country descends into chaos because nothing gets done two weeks before and two weeks after. Why? Why should we live in booths? And the answer is amazing. And it's not only amazing, usually so often we don't notice the answer. And it says, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Why do we do a ritual? Why do we do this tradition? 
It's not that the tradition or the ritual is the end in itself. It's so that we may know. Know what? Know the mighty acts of God. Know how God delivered us. Now, in a very Western Protestant mindset, um, and sometimes this philosophical mindset, we don't think in these sorts of terms. If I wanted to tell my children that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, I might read them a Bible story. I might even sing them a song. But the place where knowing happens for us is all up here, or we think it should happen somehow in our spirit. But the Bible wants truth to be embodied. It wants truth to be, uh, you might say, realized or revealed in flesh and blood. That's why Jesus is sent to us in the incarnation, right? The body is important. The physical world is important, if not essential. And therefore, yes, it's not just some intellectual fact. Yes, God commands Israel, you know, live in booths. Yes, so that every year you'll come to this realization. Yes, it will be internalized that I brought your forefathers out. I brought them out of Egypt and delivered them and gave them, uh, gave them this land. Um, it's something that brings the past, yes, into the present. And it's done not just intellectually, not just somehow spiritually, but it's also done physically, which makes it more powerful, makes it... Makes it, uh, makes it real. Um, you know, there's a, there are many other similar examples in the Bible. In uh, Genesis 15, God appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham says, how do I know that? Like, I would ask that question, having a dream. And what does God say? Oh, you have faith, don't worry. God says, let's have a barbecue. Let's have a barbecue. A barbecue, a sacrifice, was, is a ritualistic act, right? So it just shows how powerful, yes, it shows how powerful rituals are. Yes, that God uses them and communicates uh, truth to us through what we might call ritual what we can call tradition, what we can call liturgy, as long as the script that we're following is a biblical script. Yes, because there are lots of scripts out there, and there are lots of rituals, and most of the rituals that we live by are not necessarily very healthy or very godly for us. And so, therefore, we may live by the ritual of... You know, I have to get the college degree. I have to get the college degree to get the big job. And I have to get the big job, you know, to have the big house. And I have to keep working so I can have get married and have 2.5 kids and get divorced and then pay alimony payments. <coughs> right? Or we may have the ritual of our political party. 
Yes, that writes our script for us. Or the ritual of our nation state, and I'm not against nation states. I'm only against our allegiance to the nation state being above our allegiance to God. Or, you know, many of us have a ritual, and uh, the ritual is the smartphone. Yes, that is our habit all through the day. And I have to confess I'm guilty. I'm, I'm a sinner preaching to sinners. Remember, we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. So said Jonathan Edwards. But he didn't thunder it. He just whispered it. And people were very convicted, even in his whisperings. That's a ritual. Yeah. Has God scripted that for me? Is that a godly ritual? Is that something that points me to God, that reveals his character? It helps me know more for certain, yes, who he is and what he's doing in my life. We have to ask a question. I think the, the, the verse should cause us seriously to examine ourselves and say, what ritual do I follow? Yes, who's writing my script? Hollywood? The devil? Lots of times we, uh, we, 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 we listen to the voice of our own brokenness. It's our anxiety, or it's our fear, or it's whatever. And uh, those will then create rituals. And those rituals will become a form of truth for us. Yes, unless we reject them. So we need healthy rituals so that we can know. We can know. Could be Bible reading, coming to the Lord's table, so on and so forth. Yes, on a regular, on a regular basis. Secondly, what do we learn from this? Is that uh, in, Deuteron- in uh, both Deuteronomy and Leviticus, it says that the Feast of Tabernacles will be a sacred assembly. This feast will be something that's A, holy, and B, communal. Now, sometimes we don't think in those terms. So we oftentimes think about, oh, this is a feast about joy. I've got to get joy. I've got to have joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Down in my heart. Yeah, that's Andrew White's favorite song. But we should change it to joy, joy, joy down in our hearts. It is a group of people, God's people, who are commanded to be joyful. Not just you or me. Not just one or two individuals. Right? It's something that we do as a group. It's something we do as a people. And it's to be sacred. It's to be holy. Now, Israel is commanded over and over again to celebrate and to enjoy life, yes, and uh, not to walk around, you know, dour in a hair shirt, you know, beating our breasts constantly, you know, thinking about our failures or the, the sins of the church. I really dislike it. People always focus on our sin, our sin, our sin, our sin. Yes, the church has many sins. 
Yes, but it also has many things that we can celebrate and be grateful for. Yes. So it's to be holy. And here you have the, you know, I think you have the, um, uh, the tension of celebrating, of celebrating, but yet celebrating in holiness. Because, you know, in a, in wor- in a worldly understanding, what happens when there is a holiday? When there is a holiday, people think, oh, hey, the rules don't apply anymore. I can cut loose. I can be free. That's, you know, the tradition of Mardi Gras. You know, I, yeah, I can just be wild and, you know, get drunk, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. You know, because it's a holiday. And that's the temptation. I come from a city called Tampa, Florida. And in Tampa, we have this day called Gasparilla Day, yes, in which the pirates, pirates by legend, came and conquered Tampa. And every year this event is celebrated, the, the, the uh, uh, elite of our city, the doctors and the lawyers and the, you know, the posh people, they all dress up like pirates and they come sailing in on a pirate ship. And, you know, then there's a parade and you can see your doctor and you can see the lawyer, you know, who charges you $2,000 an hour. And they're all walking down the street dressed like pirates and they're drunk. And it's socially acceptable. Is it not, Becky? It's socially acceptable. Well, Israel is called to celebrate. Israel is called to celebrate, but the celebration, yes, is done in a, in a, it's, there's a purity and there's a holiness. It's not exactly like the pagan world celebrate, celebrated and still celebrates to this day. Because, of course, in that debauchery and in that drunkenness and in the all the immorality that goes on in the name of a holiday, maybe Thanksgiving is an American exception, what happens is that people get hurt. We end up hurting ourselves, and we end up hurting others. Let's look at the number of people killed, you know, on the roads from folks driving around drunk, et cetera, et cetera. So what we learn is that this is indeed a sacred assembly. Yes, it's something we do together, not just as individuals, but it's something we do uh, we do in holiness. Think maybe one of, uh, we need to keep in mind the, the liturgical calendar here because just five days before the Feast of Tabernacles was uh, Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur was a time of repentance and uh, confession. And that repentance and confession sometimes can make us feel a little distant from God a little bit like, you know, we're not holy, but God is holy, and maybe we're failures. But the Feast of Tabernacles is going to emphasize God's presence amongst his people. Yes, and it will be a time of joy and a time of God's blessings. Yes. Uh, by the way, our communion service is structured in the same way. Our communion service it starts with a time of repentance and confession, And then it goes to a time of celebration. 
The Eucharist in Greek is just means to celebrate. We are celebrating the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we believe, yes, and, and most Christians believe, that in some mysterious way, not necessarily not by transubstantiation, but in some mysterious way, we meet the Lord's presence, yes, when we come to the table in faith and with thanksgiving. So you can see the... Now, how, what does it mean to, to celebrate this? Well, here's something interesting, you know, and I've said it, every, I think I say it every year. I say it every year because we so easily forget it. In the passages that we read, God commands us to be joyful and to express gratitude. Now, the Bible rarely, rarely ever commands our emotions. The Bible generally doesn't care how you feel. It cares whether you're obedient, right? Those feelings actually come second. But the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and in one instance, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, these are exceptions. Yeah? These are exceptions. God commands us to be joyful. Let me remind you of at least one, one verse. It says, um, not only is, it says, celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days. Ce- celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days. Now notice, you're celebrating the festival, you're not celebrating the harvest. Remember when I told you to look this up on Wikipedia? Yeah, some of you did. You did it immediately. You're very obedient. You got out your smartphones and you started to check on right in the middle of the sermon. I, I respect that. <laughs> I mean, just compliance in the most difficult of circumstances. Yes, you had you taken out your smartphones and checked Wikipedia, we, you would have read this is a harvest festival, a time of gathering. But it doesn't say rejoice in the fest. It doesn't say rejoice in the harvest. Not to rejoice in our success. Not to rejoice in the bonus that we got. Uh, not to rejoice that uh, we, 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 we escaped COVID. It's to rejoice in the festival. And the festival itself is all about the Lord. That's what the sign says on the sukkah. By the way, it's not our sukkah, it's the sukkah of the Hebrew congregation. And if you have any complaints or any praises, you, you send them. You can send them your, your comments. So it's rejoicing. It's rejoicing in the Lord. Now, what does it mean to rejoice or to show gratitude? What is perhaps, what is the highest form of, what is the highest form of gratitude? Highest form of gratitude is joy. The highest form of gratitude is to be is not just to be grateful for what someone has done for us or for the situation that we're in, but to respond joyfully and to live in that joy, even if sometimes our circumstances might be difficult or even stressful. And so, um, again, the Bible uh, commands us, wants us to be 
to, to, to uh, rejoice, to be joyful. And you might ask, well, what? Wait a minute. What if I don't feel like it? Well, you know, feelings follow facts, do they not? Or feelings uh, follow action. And uh, it's by living in a certain way or doing, some, uh, doing things in a certain way that actually joy will follow. If this is a sacred assembly, may I remind you that, first of all, there's worship involved. Right? This, and what did worship involve in the ancient context? Worship involved, uh, or, or worship involved this idea of a feast or a festival, at least six of the days. Six of the holidays are connected to the word hug in Hebrew, which comes from the verb to dance, to go around, to make pilgrimage, to leap. Yes, to do something physical with our body. And so often, more than not, we think, oh, no, worship is just an attitude and it's something that happens here. Means to chant psalms, to use liturgy, obviously to sing, and more. And of course, every time in in the ancient world, whenever one would go up to the go up to the uh, the temple, you never came or never went empty-handed. What does Deuteronomy tell us? The verse in Deuteronomy says the following. It says, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So in giving gifts, giving gifts is a way of saying thank you. It's not that we can repay God for what he's given us, but it's a way of uh, acknowledging. It's a way of giving a token, yes, of saying to God, thank you. God doesn't need our sacrifices, okay? But God wants to enter into a relationship. And that really ancient, in the ancient world, in ancient Israel, the relationship was understood in the giving of gifts. God gives a gift to Israel, which Israel doesn't deserve. But Israel says, thank you, by giving a portion of that back and acknowledging, hey, God, that actually comes from you. It's not mine. You know, it's not something I earned. It's not something, you know, I, it's not some, uh, something that I achieved, you know, from the sweat of my brow. It's something that you gave me and it rightfully belongs to you. And so one brings a sacrifice. But can I point out to you that not only does one bring a sacrifice, but that one gives to those who are in need. And so the same passage says the following. It says, be joyful at your feast, you, your sons and daughters, your maidservants, and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, as you shall have this uh, feast to to the Lord, and then all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. Now, how are widows and orphans going to celebrate unless 
there's generosity, right? Unless there's charity or help given to those who are helpless. And so what, is it, and what does it mean to be grateful? Not only it means to be joyful, not only it means to worship, especially perhaps in a physical way, but it also means that we're going to be generous. First, we're giving to the Lord, and we're giving to those who are in need. Now, it also should, this celebration, again, it's not an end in itself, and it should point us first to the character of God, but second, it should help shape and modify our behavior and to make us uh, ethical. And so another way of expressing gratitude is through obedience. It's another way of saying, I'm, God, I'm grateful for what you've done for me. Over and over again in the, um, in the scripture, it says the following. It says, because I've taken you out of Egypt, because I've taken you out of Egypt, because I've delivered you from slavery, I want you to act in a different way. I want you to show gratitude. And so some of the verses would be, um, don't lend money at an interest. Yes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you uh, the land of Cana. And this is uh, Leviticus 25. Um, uh, And that's connected to helping a stranger or a foreigner, because you were, because the Israelites are my servants when I brought them out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeem you. That is why I give you this command uh, today. Yes, because Israel, because you were slaves, and because you were helpless, and because you were in bondage, when you come into the land. I don't want you to behave or live in the same way. I want you to show gratitude. And the way that we show gratitude, yes, is by obeying God's commands and modeling ourselves after after his character. Now, there's a New Testament component to this. Yes, we love God because he first loved us. Yes. Or remember the parable of Jesus Yes, in Matthew 18, about the unmerciful servant. I don't think I have to uh, recall the parable for you. Yes, the servant who wasn't, who was shown mercy, but didn't show mercy. Yes, when uh, he needed to. And for Jesus, this is not some cheerful suggestion, but it's a command. So again, God has been good to us, even if things don't always go our way, even if we have suffering or distress. And our response, again, should be one of worship and expressing gratitude through joy and through obedience. Finally, it says, live in the booth. We call it a tabernacle, but it's actually a booth because the booth is temporary. Look behind me. The booth is flimsy. The booth is fragile. Yes. Uh, 
wind and rain can easily, easily knock it down. Yes, live in this for seven days, because by this time Israel had farms and houses and cities. So go back and relive. Go back, yes, and uh, remember that reality of God caring for you in the wilderness. And what's the wilderness? The wilderness was it's the most difficult, unimaginable place. It's the place in which there are no natural resources. There's no water. There's no food. Yet the place that where things were the most difficult for Israel was the very place where God performed his most miraculous miracles. Isn't that true for us when we are sometimes the most desperate and when we run out of all human resources, we turn to the Lord and the Lord brings us deliverance. And this living in this sukkah, living in this sukkah reminds us that life is risky and that life is fragile and that uh, life is uncertain because all of those things are good reminders because we crave certainty. And we all crave stability. And we all want to plan for the future. And we all want to make sure that every contingency is covered one way or another. But my dear friends, life doesn't work out that way, does it? Unfortunately. Life doesn't work out that way. And what disturbs me, at least in the United States, is you have this insatiable craze for safety. People want to be in safe places, and they don't want to be confronted with anything distasteful or anything that might cause upset. You know, this is no, um, there's no condoning uh, racism or, or misogyny, but at the same time, it's a nonsense to say that in this life, that somehow we're going to, um, you know, have total assurance that things are always going to go our way and that we ha- we're not going to be confronted, you know, with, uh, you know, any reality that might, that might be difficult or uncomfortable. And so the sukkah reminds us that we're always under God's care and that there is God's provision even when things are difficult. Even when things, um, again, might not go the way that we expect. Now, here we talk about worship, celebration, and God's care, and God's provision. And you know, the, the Pope before last, Pope Benedict, he asked the question. He said, how can a Christian truly celebrate? How can we truly celebrate unless we know that there's a purpose to life and that, yes, the great question of death has been dealt with? And I must say I agree with him because we can celebrate the harvest and we can worship and we can dance and we can sing, but at the end of the day, we all die. And what's the meaning of all this? What's the meaning of all this? 
Well, Revelation chapter 7, you might say, is a heavenly feast of tabernacles. It's a heavenly gathering. You know, it's the, the, it's the, the harvest, the final harvest. Yes. And God, the Lord Jesus himself, is the sukkah. He is the thing that shelters and protects and cares for his people. And I think, especially because the book of Revelation, in more than one place, kind of appropriates and takes yes, this imagery of, of the Feast of Tabernacles, that it should serve for us as an assurance, yes, that while this life is risky and uncertain, that um, at the end, we have a promise. We have the promise of eternal life, the promise of God's presence, the promise of uh, God's shelter. And I'd like to end with Feast of Tabernacle imagery by just reading from Revelation chapter 7, because this is indeed a time. In the Jewish tradition, by the way, um, the Feast of Tabernacles was seen as a um, beautiful picture of the end time, when all the nations would uh, be converted and uh, acknowledge the God of Israel. And this is what we have in a way here in Revelation 7, because there's a great multitude uh, that no one can count from every nation, people and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. It's an assembly of purity. Yes, and it's, a, and it's a time of great rejoicing. And um, one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent or his tabernacle in Greek over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.